If you've got it open there, we're reading Obadiah. We're going to read verses 15 through 18. This is the second half of the book. Remember the first half, chapters 1 through 14. Sorry, not chapters. Verses 1 through 14. They were focusing on the the doom, the demise of Esau that was impending. It was coming up quickly. And what we saw was Edom was facing soon destruction. And from history, we see that that happened not too long after when that last Babylonian king came and wiped him out. But then verses 15 through 21 transition and they focus on what God is going to do in the future, even future to us, how he is going to make all wrongs right. He is going to mete out justice, even though it has been long term. The day of the Lord is coming. And what it does is it shows us God's judgment, but then also the restoration that he has for his people. So let's read it. If you've got your Bibles, look at Obadiah verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen or the nations. As you have done, it will be done unto you. Your reward will return upon your own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and they shall swallow down. And they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. And there shall be holiness. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken it. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau. And they of the plain the Philistines. And they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath. And the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. And saviors shall come upon Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. So, how would you, uh, we're looking, we're looking at verses 17 and 18. Any observations from those as we were just reading through it? Anything that stands out to you? Did anything stand out to anyone? Adrian? Go ahead, Adrian. And do with this Savior's being on Mount Zion judging the Mount of Yeah. Savior's being on Mount Zion and they're going to judge the Mount of Edom. It's a good question. Yeah. If you read it and take it at face value, it sure sounds like something's literally going to happen. We'll get there next week, Lord willing. Mr. Peter? I should have raised my hand in the first place. It's okay. Um, well, that phrase, the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions, doesn't make a lot of sense without the context of the rest of the book when you realize that they have their possessions taken away from them. Yeah. That's interesting. So uh, the observation that it goes along with the context. Without that context, why is Jacob possessing their possessions? It's like, 
Don't they already possess their own possessions? Any other observations that stand out? All right, well, let's work through this. Um, Here's our outline. We've talked about God's vengeance on Esau. That's verses 1 through 14. And then God's victory for Jacob, verses 15 through 21. Um, And right now, we're finishing up the bad good news, which is the demise of Esau on the day of Yahweh. So we're finishing that up with verses 17 and 18. And then, Lord willing, next week, we'll look at the good good news the restoration of Jacob on the day of Yahweh, or the day of the Lord. And realizing this is, those aren't my words, I'm not clever enough to say the bad good news and the good good news, but the point the author, his name is Daniel Block, what he's getting at is, there is those verses 15 through 18, what we're working through right now, it is good news, but for whom? It's good news for Israel. Because their enemies are being destroyed so that they can be restored. But it's bad news for Esau. So it's bad good news. Does that make sense? But then the good good news is Jacob is going to be restored. And God will be the one who owns the kingdom. Good. Okay, and then verses 15 through 18, here's our outline. The first part of it is the announcement of the day of the Lord. Then we get the ultimate fate of Esau and the nations. And then Obadiah, he contrasts for us the fate of Jacob. Because the fate of Esau was, as they had done, it would return upon their own head. In other words, the way they treated Israel in the day of Israel's judgment, specifically Judah, that southern kingdom in 586 BC, as they had treated God's people, God was going to then bring justice upon them. I'll just give you guys, I'm not sure what's hilarious, but here's your opportunity not to have to be forced to come up front, okay? All right, stay focused. But then, oh, don't be confused. If you were paying attention, you're not included in that. You're good. They know who they are. Where were we? Okay, the contrasting fate of Jacob. So that's what we're looking at tonight. Here's the big idea. God has promised he's going to restore Israel by defeating their enemies. That's kind of just the big picture that we get here. So he says, he says in verse 17, but in Mount Zion. So there's this contrast. He's just said, as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. And remember, the way we worked through that is, As Jacob had drunk of the wrath of God, remember when they were judged, as they had drunk of God's wrath, so also all will drink, all the nations will drink continually. There is coming judgment for all the nations who rebel against God. They will drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. So he was focused on the nations and the judgment coming for them. And then we get a contrast. Obadiah, he shifts gears. For us, he says, but upon Mount Zion. So, in the midst of this bad news that there's judgment coming for the nations, there's good news for Jacob. Okay, who knows what Mount Zion is? Nathan? It is indeed a mountain. Dominic? It's the mountain where God came and Moses went up and there was lightning and all the Israelites. 
Was it was that the one or was that uh, Mount Sinai? <coughs> Ezekiel. With Elijah yeah. on Mount Carmel. Okay, we've got two mountains that are crossed off our list of what Mount Zion is not. Adrian? That's his dwelling. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of mountains in the Bible, aren't there, you guys? Colton? What, what's, I can't quite hear Colton. What's he saying? Jesus did go to this mountain. That is true. John? It is located in the middle. All right. Well, we've made some progress. Mr. Peter. It's where the temple was. That's right. It's where the temple is, or was, where the temple was. So if you guys look at this map. Uh, let's go yellow. Can you see that? It's in that yellow circle, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is Mount Zion. It's the same thing. Mount Zion, it first comes up back in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Um, remember, if you remember your Israelite history, who was the first king of Israel? Saul was. And Saul was, uh, was he a good king or a bad king? Yeah, there were some problems, weren't there? But then who was the king after Saul? David was. Now, was David perfect? No. no, he wasn't. But was he a good king? Yes. yes, he was. So David, he ruled in a city called Hebron. He wasn't ruling over all of Israel at first. He ruled there for a little over seven years. But then Israel came to him, the rest of Israel, and they say, hey, David, when you were the general in King Saul's army, you were the one leading the whole army in and out. And they say, so David, we want you to be king over over the rest of the nation of Israel. And so David then becomes king over Israel. And in total, he reigned for 40 years. But he moved his capital city from Hebron to Jerusalem. But the history, Jerusalem was known as an enemy stronghold. It was the residence of the Jebusites. And a stronghold it was, because Jerusalem sits upon top a mountain. That's why it's called Mount Zion. So it's up on top of a mountain. This is looking at it from what's known as the Kidron Valley. If you remember um, the brook Kidron, Jesus and his disciples crossed that that last night before he was betrayed. Do you remember that? So this is looking up toward the city of Jerusalem. So you can see how it's a good place to build a city with tall walls. It's going to be a struggle for the enemies to find or to, to penetrate. Jonathan? You know, you'll have to ask uh, the people who live in Israel right now. I don't know. Okay. You guys are killing me. You're killing me. Okay. Okay. Ezekiel. Sure on that one. I'm not sure when you're talking about. Like in Revelations, the spirits round up the armies of the world and bring them to a certain spot. 
I don't think so. Are you talking about the bottle of Armageddon? That's, that's up north. So if we uh, go back to our map here, that is up here. That's up in northern Israel. Yeah. But good question. Okay, so that's Mount Zion. So God says in Mount Zion, there will be escape. In Mount Zion, there will be escape. Um, or deliverance. So here's the idea. It's really cool. The, this, if you like grammar, this is for you. If not, still try to get it. Okay? In a normal sentence, we need what parts to make it up? Nathan? A subject and a verb. That's right. We need a subject and a verb. The subject here is actually escape or deliverance. So in Mount Zion, deliverance there will be. It's emphasizing the fact that there will be deliverance. There's going to be escape. Now picture it. Just picture this. Try to take yourself back 2,500 years and put yourself in the sandals of an ancient Israelite. Babylon has just come and they have completely destroyed your precious city, Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's not just any city, but it's the city where God promised that he would dwell that was where God said he would dwell. Can you go back with mommy, please? It's okay. Buddy, you need to go back with mommy, okay? Daddy's trying to teach. Thank you. So Mount Zion, Jerusalem, was not just any city. It's the special city where God promised that he was going to dwell. And he would protect this city. So picture it as an ancient Israelite... All your hope has been in the fact God has promised this land to us as an everlasting inheritance. You could go back and see that in the book of Genesis. Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. God is making promises to Abraham. And part of that promise is that he was going to give this land to Abraham's descendants as an everlasting possession. But picture it. As an Israelite, your hope has been tied to this land God promised you. And now all of your hopes have been dashed. Your city has been destroyed. Your land has been razed. And you have been taken captive off to the nation of Babylon. Or maybe you were one of the lucky refugees who escaped and you're living in the land with no food, no shelter, and you're being tortured by the people of the land. Does that sound like a very fun existence? Imagine that as an ancient Israelite. The God who you thought would protect you, at least in your mind, has let you down. Now realize, God didn't let Israel down. He had promised hundreds of years before, back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, that if they chose to disobey God's covenant with them, there would be curses. And the pinnacle of the curses was that they would be destroyed and they would be exiled out of the land. So it's actually the other way around. What is Exactly. The Israelites, they forsook God. God didn't first forsake them. Exactly. Jonathan, you had your hand up. I mean, it was a serious question, but it was kind of not what we were talking Okay. All right. So that's Mount Zion, but picture that. Israel, they have had their hopes dashed. They think it's hopeless. They think God has deserted them. But then God says, wait a second. But in Mount Zion, there will be escape. There will be deliverance in the future. 
And he says, not only is there going to be deliverance or escape, but there's also going to be holiness. And this is the same as the last sentence before it. Holiness is the subject of the verb. So escape there will be, holiness there will be. Now, can anyone help us? How would we define holy? John? Okay, Jesus is indeed holy. Addie? Very, very mighty. Adrian? Righteous and blameless. Righteous and blameless. Good. Mia? Perfect. Perfect. Absolutely. Eric? Yeah. At its core, the word holy means to be set apart. It means to be set apart. So, for us, think of it as set apart from sin to God. That's the idea of holiness. And why is holiness important? As John mentioned, Jesus is holy. God is holy. And will God dwell in places that are unholy? No, he won't. But did you know God wants to dwell among his people? So for Jerusalem, Mount Zion, to be God's dwelling place once again, there must be holiness in the city. Are you following what I'm saying? Does that make sense? You guys with me? All right. I've got a couple seats up here open for you if you want them. In Mount Zion, there will be deliverance, there will be holiness. And then he says, and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. As Mr. Peter pointed out, this is, uh, this is a little difficult to understand if you haven't been reading along with the rest of the text. Because why does it say that they're going to possess their possessions? Somebody help us make the connection here. Why is the house of Jacob going to possess their possessions? Why is he talking about that? Nathan? Adrian? Um, is it because when they come back from Babylon, they're going to get their possessions back? Or... Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely part of it. John, did you have something? Because it's, it's theirs. Exactly. But what happened to it? Why don't they have it? Dominic? Exactly. Because they came, Babylon and their enemies took everything. Remember, that was verses 11 through 14. How they came, they carried away the captives. They, what's the word I'm looking for? Plundered the city. They took everything. But now, God says, the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Now, it's interesting, just take note, that word house, he uses it first at the end of verse 17, and then he's going to use it four more times in verse 18. The house of Jacob, the house of Jacob, the house of Joseph, the house of Esau, the house of Esau. So he's talking a lot about houses. What does that mean when he calls it the house of Jacob or the house of Esau? Ezekiel? Yeah, exactly. It means all the people that are from that person. So once again, what Obadiah is doing is he's emphasizing the family ties. 
the ancestral line. You following that? But when he says they will possess their possessions, this links Jacob's future with his past. Because remember, what did God promise them as an everlasting possession? Do you remember? We talked about it at the beginning of this. Genesis 15, 7 and 8. God said to him, to Abram, I am the Lord that brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how will I know I will inherit it? John? It's okay. It's right here, guys. It's the promised land. Remember that? This was the key to the Abrahamic covenant. Remember? God promised him land, seed, and blessing. See? You do remember. We covered that like a year and a half ago. Land, seed, and blessing. And then in the the Mosaic covenant, when God makes this covenant with his people, he makes promises to them. He says, I will bless you if you obey me. The blessings of God were tied to the land he was giving them. So for them to possess their possessions means God is going to restore the land that was given to them. And in the land of Israel, it was kind of cool how land got passed down. If God's promises were tied to the land, then it's important that you own the land that was given to your family. You following that? You tracking with me? So that means what would happen, you weren't supposed to sell your family land. But if for some reason you got into debt and needed to sell the land to pay that debt off, what would happen? How would the land get back to the right family? Anybody remember anything? Zoe? That's right, the year of Jubilee. Someday, hopefully, we can get to that and study it in depth. But the year of Jubilee would come around every 49 years. And this year of Jubilee, if anyone had had to sell their land, the land would return to the appropriate family. Mr. Peter? Yeah, that was the year of Sabbath. So they would work the land for six years. In the sixth year, they would get a threefold crop and they would let the land rest for that seventh year. And so, since we're on this topic, that, that Sabbath year, that's part of why Israel got exiled from their land. Because they refused to let the land have the rest God commanded. And so God takes them out of the land for how many years were they in exile? 40 years. Not 40. Colton? Much more than five. Dominic? Okay, Zoe? That's right. It was a 70-year captivity that God took them out of the land, and the land got the rest that God had commanded in the first place. It's really cool how all this ties together. God didn't make any mistakes. Addy? A Sabbath. So Sabbath is from a Hebrew word that means to rest. I know that, but it's uh-huh. the Sabbath year. Yeah, so the Sabbath year is the year of rest for the land. So they would, they would farm on the land for six years, but then in the seventh year, they were supposed to not farm it. They were supposed to leave it, um, leave it to rest. And so God commanded that, but we realize 
with our modern agriculture, if you work the land too hard, you depleted of its nutrients. So God instituted this in a way for their land to always be productive. Does that make sense? Okay, Adrian? I've noticed that um, you have Sabbath is seven years, right? And the year of Jubilee is 49 years. That's right. God likes sevens a lot. God does like sevens a lot. I agree. Yeah. Okay, so when he says that the house of Jacob will possess their possessions, that's a key. What the Israelites would have heard is we have a possession. It's in the land. And God's going to give us that possession back. There is still hope. Even if they're exiled outside of the land or if they're living as a refugee in the land, there is hope in the future. Are you following along with this plot line? Their hopes have been dashed. And Obadiah offers them a glimmer, a ray of hope. In, the Mount, in Mount Zion, there will be deliverance. There will be holiness. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then, verse 18, um, we get another, another contrast. So Jacob is going to be restored. But what's going to happen to the house of Esau? Verse 18. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph, a flame. And the house of Esau, for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken it. What's he talking about with this fire? It's hot. Okay. It's hot in the world. Okay. Colton? Okay. Lake of fire. John? Powerful. Powerful. Have you guys ever heard of the scorched earth policy in war? The scorched earth tactic? General William, yeah, General William Sherman back in the Civil War, he used it. Here's a picture um, of his march to the sea. And what scorched earth policy means is as you come and you conquer and you take over, you burn the land behind you as you conquer enemy territory so that they can't come back and use any of the things that you burned. So you burn their vehicles, you burn their crops, you burn their structures, so they have nothing left. Ezekiel? The Russians did the opposite of that during the Napoleonic Wars. They burnt their own? Yeah, so they didn't have anything to send them back once you come back. It's okay, but you were onto it. Good job. That's what it's getting at here. It's a scorched earth type of warfare. And the point is, just as Esau had treated Jacob, they have upcoming judgment for them. And God is going to use Israel to judge Edom, just like God used Edom to judge Israel. Did you follow that? It's poetic justice. It's a reversal of the roles. That's why our graphic for the book of Obadiah is a flame. Because he says the house of Jacob will be what? Verse 18. It will be a fire. And the house of Joseph, a flame. Okay, quick question. Why does he say the house of Jacob and the house of Joseph? What's the difference between those? The names. Okay, the names are different. What do they stand for? Mr. Peter. Joseph, well, uh, his descendants were the most numerous, right? Yeah, he had two tribes that came from him, Ephraim and Manasseh. If you remember that back in Genesis 50, Jacob adopted Ephraim and Manasseh, and so they both got... Um, a plot. Yes, John. Okay. 
So here's what it's getting at. The house of Jacob, he's using to refer to the southern kingdom of Judah. The house of Joseph, one of the tribes was Ephraim. Ephraim was the younger son of Joseph, but he got the elder blessing from Jacob. You can go and read that back in the book of Genesis. But Ephraim was the leading tribe of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now realize, Judah just went into captivity, 586 B.C., but it was 722 B.C. when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And they've been scattered all across the known world. From a, from a practical perspective, Israel has been scattered so much at this point, they're never going to be reunited. But he says the house of Joseph will be aflame. God gives a glimmer of hope not just for Judah, the ones who were semi-faithful a few times, but even for Israel, that northern kingdom that was totally godless and idolatrous and had only wicked kings. Are you following along with me there? So the house of Jacob, Judah, will be a fire. The house of Joseph, a flame. But then the metaphor. He says, and the house of Esau for stubble. And most of you probably know what stubble is. It's like chaff. When you thresh wheat, you beat it to get the grain out. There's the husk that's left. That's kind of what it looks like. And how many matches do you think it would take to light that little uh, pan of chaff? Yeah, probably. Okay, maybe five. I'm going to guess one. Chaff or stubble is extremely flammable. So get the picture. God is saying Judah and Israel, he's going to make them into a flame and he's going to bring judgment on Esau. And as if they were chaff, they are going to be burned up and consumed. So he says, end of verse 18, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau. Total destruction. How do we know it's true? End of verse 18, for the Lord has spoken it. That's a pretty grim picture, isn't it? If you've got your Bibles, afford me just a moment. Go back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Because this is good news for Israel. They're going to be restored. But it's really bad news for Esau. Because they are the enemies of God. They have sinned against him and his people. And remember that Abrahamic promise. God said to Abraham, Those who bless you, I will bless. But those who curse you, I will curse. That's the fate that Esau is receiving. But back in Psalm 2, we get a really interesting picture. This psalm authored by King David, um, he starts it off. Why do the heathen, that's the nations, why do the nations rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Saying, let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord will have them in derision. Then he will speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Okay, so get the picture. The nations want to throw off God's reign. God is the rightful king. He's the creator. He's in charge. But look out at the world around us. Do people just naturally want to serve God? No. No, they don't. Zach? Well, humans are designed to serve some. Yeah, we're designed to serve God. But now, as sinful man, do we naturally serve God? No. Like Elise just said, we naturally tend to serve self. Realize, that's what the nations are doing. 
They want to throw off God's reign. But God says, no, he laughs. How dare the nations defy God, their creator? And verse 9, it says, you will break them with the rod of iron. Speaking of God's anointed one, his Messiah, you will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. But then really focus on this last phrase in verse 12. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Just as Esau kindled God's wrath through their mistreatment of God's special people Israel, and just like Israel before them kindled God's wrath by their disobedience and um, what's, the, what's the negative of allegiance? Disallegiance? Disloyalty. Disloyalty, thank you. And their disloyalty to God. They kindled God's wrath. So also, everyone who's ever lived has kindled the wrath of God. How, you might ask? Well, we have all sinned against God. That's disobedience. That's a crime on the cosmic level. Disobedience to God demands death. The Bible says that. But realize there is escape. We deserve God's wrath in the lake of fire forever because of our sin. But there is refuge only in the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus bore God's wrath for us. And so then that's why it says in verse 12, blessed are all those that put their trust in him or take refuge in him. So I'd encourage you, we also deserve God's wrath like Esau does. And yet God has made a way for us to have refuge from his wrath through his son. Nathan? When you were talking about how everyone kindles God's wrath, and then when you were talking Before the rapture, that's when he lights it all and then takes all the Christians away. Because it does say that the world is going to burn. It does. Yep. That's right. Well, Lord willing, we will uh, finish our study of Obadiah next week.